Well, welcome back to our Q&A time. Our first question is, sin has been described in many ways, including transgression of the law, breakdown of trust, distrust, missing the mark, sickness, disharmony. What are your thoughts on each and or, more importantly, how do you reconcile them? First question, what do we ask? What law lens that you're looking through? Once you look through the law lens of God's laws or the laws upon which reality are built, they originate in his character, they're the expressions of love, and they're how things are designed to operate, then sin breaks his design protocols for life or his law, and and that is breaking down the principles of love. It's breaking down trust. So it's the same when you break trust. Now you have fear and self-centeredness, and this misses the mark of God's perfection for how life works, which introduces disharmony, sickness, and conflict. It's all directly connected. It's all the same because God's laws are the design laws for life. I understand that there will be four groups of people when Jesus comes. Last week I said there's three groups. There are those who are sealed uh, into loyalty to God and nothing can... uh, There are three groups today and there'll be two when he comes. Uh, Those settled so into their loyalty to God they can't be shaken out of it like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Job, Daniel. No matter what they face, uh, they will not be shaken out of their loyalty to God. There are those who are sealed into their rebellion against God. No matter what comes, they will not be won to loyalty. Those who died in in the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Judas... Uh, after he betrayed Christ, he uh, would not repent, and so forth. Sealed. And then those in the middle who right now in, in the world today have not been so settled into the truth about God, they won't be moved in any, for anything. Or those who are so hardened, they can't be won. There's that group in the middle that can go either way. And that's what the gospel is working towards to win those people to loyalty to Christ. This person, though, and then in the end, when Christ comes, there's only the two groups, the sheep and the goat, the wheat and tares, and so forth, as Jesus described. This person says, I understand there are four groups, Revelation 22, 11, in Revelation 22, 11 reads, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to do vile, to be vile. Let him who does right continue to be right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Um, this is two groups. Okay. It's just the, the, the wrong and the vile are the same group of loss uh, settled into rebellion. And the right and the holy are the same group settled into loyalty. So it's describing the two groups that I, I, uh, was, was suggesting. Thank you for that. Could you share your thoughts about this article and or at least this quote? I will share my thoughts about the quote that they, they submitted. And the quote is, we don't um, like science if someone suggests that the earth is 4.543 billion years old, even though we can't explain those hundreds of thousands of earth, of earth and rock layers with uh, trilobites farther down, dinosaurs in the middle and mammoths and near the top and so forth. Um, <coughs> We have an explanation for everything. <laughs> this is not a mystery. What the problem is, there is, I'm going to say this as a, as a principle. There is never any disagreement at all between science rightly understood and scripture rightly understood. They always harmonize, always. There is a disagreement when we misunderstand one or the other. When you actually believe Earth is the center of the universe, and the sun rotates around the earth, okay, then your understanding of science, uh, of the Bible, is conflicted with the objective observations, and then you must imprison Galileo when he suggests the earth rotates around the sun because you have a contradiction. You think he's undermining scripture. No, your misunderstanding was in scripture. Uh, you thought the Bible taught something it didn't teach. Okay, And so many people misunderstand this because they think that Genesis 1.1 Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is a uh, description of the creation of the universe. It is not. Job 38, 7 tells us, and we just read about it, 
that when the foundations of the earth were laid or the earth was made, the angels sang together for joy. Well, if they're singing together for joy when the earth is creating, what would that require? That they exist. They're already been created. There's some aspect of reality that already exists prior to the creation of earth. Isn't that what that would mean? That's exactly what that would mean. So, so Genesis 1-1 is not the description of the entire universe. Genesis 1-1 is the description of terraforming planet earth. And it describes that there was actually something here already. It does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth did not exist and there was a big nothing. And God then spoke and out of nothing came something. Uh, no, that's not what it says. There was a deep, dark void and water covered the face of the deep. There was something here. But there wasn't any life here. And how long had there been something, in my personal view, that, that in the corner of what we call the Milky Way was a black hole? This is my personal view. And the universe is already going on. There's planets out there. There's angels and who knows what other intelligences God has created in his infinite universe. Uh, and over here in the corner of the Milky Way is a little black hole that God has a plan for. And when the time is right, he comes over and says, let there be light. And the black hole dissipates, and all the rest of the light of the rest of the stars of the universe start flying through. And on day four, he said, now let us make a sun, moon, and stars. And those are the stars of our solar system, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, that you can see at night. Okay, and the, and the moon. And what did he make that from? He made it from matter that he had spoken into existence at some time, because God creates from nothing, so he didn't, he wasn't dependent on pre-existing matter. He had spoken it in, and, and it's like a, as a potter working with clay, he's got, except God makes the clay itself, but metaphorically, uh, he takes a group of clay and he makes something here, and he goes back and gets some more clay that he previously had made, okay? And, and so when we've had things that are billions of years old, those are non-living matter. And the Bible's very clear that the universe as God created it was existence before earth was terraformed we don't know the bible doesn't tell us how long in the in the process of of god's creation other beings had been in existence before he got around to making earth we're not told that so there's no conflict here at all oh and the dinosaurs my view of the dinosaurs they were not created by god they were amalgamations uh hybrid hybrids if you will. we're doing it today to a lesser degree you know what a liger is a tiger and a lion, okay? We do it to a lesser degree, but prior to the flood, with, uh, with life having such vitality because all the beings on earth had been made by God with no genetic decay uh, prior to the fall of man, they had such great vitality they could create more um, disgusting and vile uh, amalgamations. My personal view, this is personal, I'm not getting it from Scripture or anywhere else, my personal view is that... Um, uh, based on Genesis 6, 6, that they were violent and violent all the time, they had blood sports. And they hybridized these animals to create the, the violent uh, dinosaur-type beings that they would have their blood sports and fight against each other, like you see in the ro- gladiators fighting in Rome, except they were doing it with animals and various things as well. Uh, we see that sometimes right now there are, you can watch on TV where people will create these various robots and they will fight their robots against each other in, in, in contests. And I think that the dinosaurs were made to a great degree by the humans living prior to the flood for their blood sports because they were violent and violent all the time. And they were not included in the ark, and God wiped them out because they were not part of his creation. 
We do it with dogs and chickens, the dog fights and the chicken fights and so forth. So, so I think there's a, a reasonable basis for my conclusion, but I can't prove it with any inspired record. What are your thoughts about the Apocrypha? Um, I, my thoughts are they are not uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, bottom line. They're historical documents uh, that people wrote, and they give you some insight into um, what people were thinking, but I don't believe they have the same level of inspiration as the Scripture. I was talking to a Muslim friend about the sin of polygamy. He said there is no prophet of God in the Old or New Testament who taught about the sin of having more than one wife. He also said polygamy and monogamy are political issues and individual choices. What is your opinion on this issue? So my, that, thank you. I like it. My opinion. My opinion is my opinion. It's not inspiration. And this is an opinion that I think actually, uh, I think the Muslim is correct. Can you find any inspired prophet that condemned it? Can you find God condemning it? You can find, if you are a thinker that, that thinks beyond rules, if you are rules-oriented, God gave the rules, and nowhere does it say that you, thou shalt not have more than one wife. Now, in the New Testament, it talks about a deacon or an elder being married to only one, but that's only if you want a leadership position. If you just want to be one of the serfs in the church, you can have many wives, you see. Okay? Yes. Don't you think the allegory in the story shows it's not a good idea? So he doesn't need to. I didn't quite get there yet. Okay, so if you're a rules-oriented person, if you're a rules-oriented person, okay, you look for rules. Some authority sets the rules. You play by the rules. And nowhere does it say thou shalt not have more than one wife. It says thou shalt not commit adultery. But as long as you marry more than one, you can have as many as you can afford. Okay, this is the thinking. That's what rules-oriented to. If you're an actual evidence-based thinker and you look at how reality works, you understand God's laws, these stories in Scripture are there to show you that polygamy breeds problems. It does not bring health. Outcomes are bad. You you get better outcomes with a uh, monogamous uh, relationship of a husband and wife uh, who love each other. That's the best and healthiest outcome. Okay, so I think I think that would be the, uh, but that's a higher order thinking. And many, many religious people do not think like this because they accept the lie that God's law works like man's law. And as long as it's on the rules, it's legal. It's like, hey, you didn't have the speed limit posted. I can drive as fast as I want. Or worse, the speed limit's posted at 70 on the interstate, and it happens to be a blizzard, and there's four inches of snow on the, on the highway. I can still drive 70 because it's legal to do so. Okay? You see, this is how people that are rules-oriented think. They don't actually think objective reality. And I think that's what's happening here. So how would I deal with this person? I wouldn't even address this issue. I would say, this, uh, this falls under, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Yeah, you, if you start trying to converse with somebody who has this mindset on this issue and prove your point, you will lose. So you don't, you, you, you step aside. And I would say, it's not even really about that. It's about how do you understand who God is? How do his methods work? How do you understand his law and how does it function? And if you can get them to understand the principles of God and the design law elements, they will come to their own conclusion about this without ever addressing it. But if you address this, you will lose because you uh, are making up rules that are not in scripture is the way they will see it. Sometimes when I discuss healthy diet or Sabbath or not watching certain media, Christians will respond by saying, well, keeping the Sabbath doesn't make you more righteous than me. Or not eating pork doesn't make you more righteous. I find those responses very odd, and I don't, uh, and I don't do those things because they make me righteous. I do them because they make my life better. I'm not sure how to respond to them. What would you say if someone said that to you? Well, first off, I would have to inquire, why are you saying what you do to them? 
What is your purpose of telling them about the fact that you don't eat pork? I, I don't remember the last time I've ever had to say to anyone, I just want you all to know, I don't eat pork. <laughs> I mean, when do you go places and have to tell people that? Okay, the only time I, the only time is if, if somebody I'm going to an event and they ask, are there any dietary restrictions for the event they're ordering food for me? You might say, well, I'm a vegetarian. Okay. Or I'm a pescatarian. If you eat fish, you might say something. But even that, which I do, I still don't say, and I don't eat pork. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't, I, I have never had to say that. So uh, I, I'd have to inquire, what, what, what's the agenda here? What were you trying to accomplish by bringing these issues up to this person? I, uh, their response suggests they perceived, whether you intended or not, they perceived you telling them that you are more righteous, that you're more virtuous, you're more holy, you're obeying the Scripture, and they're disobedient to God because they're not doing what Scripture has clearly informed you needs to be done. That's, that's, what, that's what their response suggests. Now, whether you intended that, and I'm not suggesting that was in your heart at all, but that's how they heard you. It's what, what their response would suggest. So um, if I wanna, when I have a talk with people and I talk to people who are non-Adventist all the time, and I never address questions like this, I end up saying things like, and I validate them, you know, you guys, you are absolutely correct in New Testament, the ceremonial laws were done away with. 100% done away with. You can eat anything you want and not be ceremonially unclean. <laughs> and they smile real big. And I said, but you understand, the laws of health were not done away with. <laughs> so if you want to be healthy, it actually makes a difference what you eat. For instance, nowhere in Scripture will you say you should not eat poison ivy salads. <laughs> it's not condemned anywhere. But if you're going to be healthy, you won't do it. And so um, if, if, as we look to, to caring for the spirit temple, there are actually differences. It has nothing to do with the Bible's pro- prohibitions on ceremonially cleanliness and uncleanliness. It has to do with actually what's good physiologically for your spirit temple. And I can tell you, I've never had a Christian object to that. And you can bring in the Sabbath issue in the same way, and I've done it. I've presented the Sabbath issue and show the data behind um, the, the law of God. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it, because if you don't use it, you lose it. That is the other side of that is the law of restoration. Once a finite being expends an energy, you must rest and recover or you burn out. So if you're a pitcher on a professional ball team and you just pitched a no-hitter, you must rest and recover. You can't pitch the next night. Law of restoration. This is reality, including mental restoration. And God has prescribed one day in seven to come apart from all the cares and stressors and works of the, of the world, set it aside without guilt. So many of my Christian patients uh, don't understand that. They're so busy with life that if they don't, they work five days a week, and if they aren't spending the weekend at the house, uh, running the kids around, doing errands, doing their shopping, getting the house clean, all this, if they don't do it, they feel guilty because they have so much more to do still until they realize God has prescribed a day for rest, and they can leave the work and not feel guilty for undone work, okay? It's, it's a beautiful thing, and the science, and I show them the science, and the science shows that those who take one day in seven to rest the mind and, and rejuvenate, sometimes in nature, sometimes with family, sometimes at church, all three show the same benefit. You will, you will actually not find in Scripture that you must attend worship services on Sabbath. It's not actually stated. Okay, but the rest, 
The rest is actually physiologically measurably healthy, and you live longer, you have less diseases if you take that. And so, again, I present it that way because God's the God of reality. He's not the God of fantasy. He's not the God of rulemaking. Let's see. Could you uh, speak to the rise of the use of psychedelics and MDMA, which is uh, ecstasy, uh, in the therapy for PTSD and other mental health issues? I find that when I watched a series on Netflix called How to Change Your Mind that promotes the use of these substances in therapy, they seem to me to bypass God's design and healing way. Many who take psychedelics come away with the lie that death is not a reality, for example. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are there's a lot in this question that is open to interpretation. A lot in this question, and and we want absolutes, and you will find that when you deal with human minds that there are a few things that are absolute. Uh, I will tell you, uh, PTSD is set up, uh, if it's genuine PTSD and not the lookalikes, but PTSD happens because of a traumatic event that floods the brain with overwhelming um, various stress hormones and neurochemicals that actually alter uh, some of the um, uh, circuits of the brain and can set up certain loops in the brain and impair certain processing of that trauma. Okay, So neurobiologic changes happen in the moment of the trauma. If they get quick intervention, usually first 24, 48 hours, you can often bring an intervention that can uh, prevent the setup of long-term PTSD. Okay, but if you don't get quick intervention, the the brain will quickly settle in and uh, have um, some of these uh, PTSD circuits that kind of get established. And they're very incalcitrant at that point. And the younger you are, the worse they are when this happens. Uh, These uh, what's been shown with these psychedelics and MDMA, it's it's not a medicine like you're used to thinking about psychiatry. We have to take something every day. These are being used. uh, And what I've seen a single one time dose given in an intense eight-hour therapy session with a trained therapist. And what these medicines do neurobiologically is they enhance neural flexibility and make you more more easily to rewire and break some connections and make new connections. And if you're doing that in a therapeutic setting, you can accelerate the breaking out of the PTSD circuits and establish new, healthier ways of processing. However, because it makes you more flexible and can change this more quickly, you are vulnerable if you have an unhealthy therapist to maybe introduce new ideas that could be harmful to you. So you'd want to be really confident the persons you're working with will be um, a bringing truths and healthy um, interventions to bear. The question on the death question, um, it really depends on what one means by that. Certainly Jesus said, those who believe in me will never die. So if they believe that they're they're not going to die, well, there's a way you can believe that that's actually quite right. They might sleep, but they're not going to die. Okay, so that that question begs some interpretation, and if that come away from this experience with some confidence or something more than just this this earth, that might give an opportunity to have a larger discussion of a larger reality in the hereafter with them. So I'm not too put off by that uh, that issue, but it also could open doors to spiritual spiritualism and things like that. You'd have to be careful. To illustrate how God's justice works, I gave my class your illustration of a child drinking chemicals. Uh, As we proceeded to talk about the meaning of being covered by the blood of Jesus, someone suggested that it could be seen as blood, quote, life transfusion to save the child. Someone added that the blood, quote, uh, unquote, is more like dialysis keeping the toxins out out of our character. I feel that the dialysis metaphor is lacking the full... The, the life-giving element. Your thoughts, please. I actually think it's a very good analogy. Um, when we uh, when we connect with Christ, 
uh, if you read Christ's Object Lessons, I think it's page um, 311, it says, uh, when we unite with Christ, our thoughts come into unity with his thoughts. Our will is merged with his will. Our desires unite with his desires. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of righteousness. And so there's this idea that when we unite with Christ, um, our thoughts begin running through a relationship with Christ. And as they run through the relationship with Christ under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit brings back and say, you know, that's really not a good attitude to have towards your neighbor. Um, and you go, you're right, Lord. Help me have a better attitude. And so the negative uh, uh, desire to see them... Um, die in a car crash crash tomorrow, moves away. I don't want them to die in a car crash. Just paralyze them for a little while, okay? And then, and, and, and that, and that, and that moves along to eventually, you know, I really want to see them come to you, Lord. And, and so the thoughts are actually being transformed and the desires are being transformed as we process our emotions and thoughts through the relationship with Christ, which is what dialysis does. It takes and removes the toxins and returns healthy uh, fluids to the body. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a lovely analogy. Uh, I counsel abuse survivors healing from complex trauma. Would you please share wisdom about how to help them resolve anger towards God for not protecting them? So you have to, and there, there, I can give some generalities. I will tell you this, with every individual, you have to assess the individual. Think of, think of the metaphor of playing golf. For those who know how to play golf, there's a rule in golf. And the rule is, you play the ball where it lies. If the ball's in the rough... You, you don't get you don't get the privilege of moving it over into the the fairway. If it's in the sand, you have to play it in the sand. Okay, there's a rule. You you have to meet people where they are. Some people you might meet and has a problem, and it's like a little six inch putt. They only have one little cognitive distortion, and you can putt that little baby in. And it's like oh that really that's great, and they walk away with a change of life. Okay, uh, most of the patients I see are not the little six inch putts. Okay, <laughs> sometimes they're in deep water. Okay. Or, or tangled in the in in the fair uh, in in the deep rough, and so it's it, it, the counseling. You assess where they are. Well, tell me about your understanding of God. Uh, w- what do you think happened? Where was God when this happened? What's your view? Tell me about your anger toward God. You have to unpack all of that and see where the idea came from and what the belief and how it got set up. And then you can actually, on the big landscape, you have to lead them to the question: What would you have had God do? What would you have Him do? And why do you think God didn't do it? Well, I'm going to tell you, it's always, always, he doesn't love me enough. I'm not important enough. I'm not valuable enough. It will always be some element that, that he didn't care enough, I'm not important enough. And, and you understand those conclusions are false. Okay, and you have to help them work through that. Then what would be a reason that God doesn't stop all the evil behaviors happening in the world? He has the power. Does he have the power? Then why doesn't he? Then we'd be robots. Then we'd be, there it is. Either God is love or he's not. Love only exists in atmosphere of freedom. Only. You cannot get love by threats, coercion, force, and control. We will not be safe in a new heaven and a new earth because God has an angel with a flaming sword on every corner and a better monitoring device than the NSA. That's not why we'll be safe. We will be safe because it will only be populated by people who have been completely restored to godliness in their character, and they love everyone more than themselves and would never hurt another person. You cannot get that kind of devotion, loyalty, love, and trust by external threats and punishment or control. You can get simulations. God could make a simulation with robotically programmed um, 
entities that walk around and simulate love, but simulations are not love. And so this is why God doesn't do it, ultimately. Why did Satan lie to Eve? To deceive her. (laughs) (laughs) To break love and trust. That's straightforward. Let's let's go close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for for your love. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the way the kingdom works. Uh, Enable us to be more effective witnesses for you in this time and continue to open avenues and advance this message to lighten the world uh, for more people to be settled into the eternal truths of your kingdom that they cannot be shaken from it. We pray in your holy name. Amen.